Well, as we continue our worship by coming now to the word of the Lord to receive his instruction, I want to ask you to do something a little different. If you would stand, if you can, for the reading of God's word this morning. You've been with us at all this year. You know, we're studying through the gospel of Luke. If you were here last Sunday or you did your personal worship before today, you know that we come to the story of the resurrection this morning. And even though we're not going to confine ourselves to just Luke's account, we're going to import stuff from Matthew and Mark and John and from history. I want you to at least hear what Luke has to say. So he says this, Luke 24, beginning in verse 1, he says, But on the first day of the week, on Sunday, at early dawn, so on Sunday morning, they, these women who, as we saw last week, had been a part of Jesus' ministry from the beginning, they followed Him all over the Galilee, they seen, or they saw everything, they heard everything, and they came to Jerusalem together with the disciples. And on Friday, before this Sunday morning, they watched Him suffer and die on a Roman cross. They watched His body taken off the cross. They watched Him carried to a tomb. They knew where it was. They watched Him be embalmed, placed in the tomb, stone rolled in front. Those women that Friday then went home to wait for the Sabbath of Saturday to pass to prepare burial spices. So now we read again, but on the first day of the week at early dawn on Sunday morning, they went back now to the tomb, taking the burial spices that they had in fact prepared so that they could further embalm the dead body of Jesus. And now here's where it gets interesting. For Luke then says that when they arrived at the tomb, they found the great big stone rolled away from the tomb. And then when they went into the tomb, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men, whom we know to be actually angels, stood by them in dazzling apparel, and as they were frightened, because it's scary to see an angel, and bowed their faces to the grounds, these men or angels said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? Guys, Jesus is not here, but is risen. Amen. You can be seated. So here's what I want to do today. I want to ask two questions of that story. Are you ready? Question number one, did that actually happen? In other words, question number one is, did Jesus Christ actually rise from the dead? Question number two is, if he actually did rise from the dead, all right, well, then what difference does that make? And I think that one kind of answers itself. So we're going to start with question number one. Did Jesus Christ really rise from the dead? And here's what I discover when it comes to this question. There are two kinds of people and only two in all the world. You ready? Number one, there are those of us who believe that, yes, Jesus, in fact, did rise from the dead. And then there's everyone else who look at those of us who believe that, yes, Jesus, in fact, did rise from the dead. And whether they're, you know, too kind to say it or not, think we're crazy. Why? Because human experience teaches us this doesn't happen. Human experience teaches us that when we bury someone who has in fact died, guys, they don't come back from the grave, ever. A hundred times out of a hundred, they don't come back. A thousand times out of a thousand, a million times out of a million, a billion times out of a billion. Listen, as far as I know, this is the only story in the entirety of human history in which someone who has actually died and been entombed has by his own power returned from the dead. It's kind of a mystifying event, is it not? Understandably, people kind of go, yeah, I don't know about that one. 
And look, I don't know if this helps, but it's not just mystifying in our day. It's mystifying in the days of Jesus, too. I mean, we just read the account of these women, and I want you to consider these women for, again, these women had seen and heard everything that Jesus did and said. So what's that? Like, miraculous things they saw, amazing things they heard. They knew, the disciples knew. Listen, the Jewish religious leaders knew that Jesus had claimed that after he suffered and died for the sins of his people on the cross at the hands of those religious leaders and the Romans, that on the morning of the third day, he would in fact come back from the dead, okay? So here they come now on the morning of the third day with burial spices. Why? Because they expect him to still be in the grave and they expect that when they find him in the grave, just like everyone else who has ever died, he'll still be dead. Resurrection is a mystifying event. Mystifying to the disciples, too, because if you know the story, what these women then do after they have this angelic encounter, which is, you know, mystifying in and of itself, is they run to find the disciples. And they come barging in and they say, hey, you're not going to believe this. We went to the tomb with the burial spices to further embalm the dead body of Jesus that, of course, we assumed would be there, because, I I mean, I know he said that he'd rise from the dead on the third day, but that's an eye roller if ever there was one. All of human experience teaches us that's ridiculous. However, when we got there, stone rolled away, tomb empty, and then angels appeared to us and said, guys, he told you he was going to rise from the dead on the third day. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen, just like he said that he would. And they say, you're right, we don't believe you. You know, they actually think that the women are nuts, crazy, delusional. Now, it's true that Peter and John get up and they run to the tomb to investigate. And they find that, in fact, you know what, the stone is rolled away and the tomb is empty, but no angels. So they come back and they report, well, all right, At least this much of their story checks out, and two of the disciples, we'll see this next week, get up at that point, and they say, you know what, guys? We're out. And they leave, not just wherever it is that they're all in hiding, which is what they're doing, by the way. They leave town. They're done. They've heard the report of the women and the confirmation of part of their story by Peter and John, and they're still rolling their eyes. I mean, this is... This is mystifying. Mystifying to Thomas, too, my namesake. Doubting Thomas, I resent that, I'm not going to lie. Not just because that's my name, but because if you really read his story, you'll find that he's one of the most courageous of the disciples. He's the guy who says, we're going to go to Jerusalem with him, even if we all have to die. And I resent it because, guys, this is the reaction of every single one of the apostles. It's not unique to him, but he's famous for this. The disciples are all huddled together behind the locked door. That's how you see them after the crucifixion, because they're all afraid that they're next, and that's a legitimate fear. So they're hiding out together, and they send Thomas, you know, he draws the short straw or something. They send him out to buy lunch or whatever, and while he's gone, Jesus appears to the rest of them. Then he leaves, and Thomas shows up with the falafel and the shawarma, you know, and, and they're like, you're not going to believe this. While you were gone, Jesus was here. And what does he say? It's, it's famous, and you can relate to this, can you not? Guys, this is mystifying. It says the other disciples told Thomas, we've seen the Lord. And Thomas said to them, look, here, here's the deal, okay? 
Just calm down. Have a seat. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will, pause for effect, never believe. He's saying, look, guys, is this like some kind of a mass delusion or something? Like, is this a virus you caught from the women? I mean, what is wrong with you? This is ridiculous. Makes no sense at all. You guys are crazy. But were they crazy? I mean, that's really what we're asking. Or really, I think what we're asking is, are we crazy? Is it crazy to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Or might it, just hang with me for a minute, actually be reasonable? And I think the only way to really discover that is to look at the alternatives. Like, what are the other options? There's resurrection and then what else? And to examine the alternatives in light of what it is that pretty much everyone agrees on, Christians and non-Christians, naturalists and supernaturalists. Here's a short list of at least some of the things that pretty much everyone agrees on. Pretty much everyone agrees that Jesus was a real person. If you don't agree that Jesus is a real person, you are on your face discredited at this point. It's ridiculous. He is testified of in the Bible. He is testified of in other historical documents. I read to you from Josephus a couple of weeks ago who talked about Jesus. By the way, he was born four years or so after this account of the resurrection. He's a first century Jewish historian considered credible by secularists. And what did he say? Jesus lived. Jesus was a doer of wonderful works. Jesus, he says, was the Christ. Jesus was crucified by Pilate and the principal men among us. Jesus was placed into a tomb, and then on the third day, he says, Jesus rose again from the dead, and these Christians who go about proclaiming this at the expense of their own life are still with us to this day. That's what he said. All right, let's go back. Pretty much everyone agrees that Jesus was a real person, a great teacher, and a worker of miracles. And I know that you might question whether he was a worker of miracles today, but nobody in the first century questioned whether he was a worker of miracles, and here's why. Because they would have been immediately discredited. There were too many people alive who had seen and experienced the miracles. They were not done in the dark. Everybody agreed on that. Real person, great teacher, worker of miracles, and everyone agrees that they, he battled it out with the Jewish religious leaders who, out of envy, conspired together to put him to death by coercing politically Pontius Pilate, who also is a real person. They found inscriptions with his name on it, for example, at Caesarea. They politically coerced Pilate to put him to death on a Roman cross. Pretty much everyone agrees that indeed he died on the cross. He was placed into a tomb, a stone was rolled in over the door of the tomb, a Roman seal was placed over the tomb, a Roman guard was placed at the tomb, and then shortly after his death and burial, everybody agrees that at the very least, the followers of Jesus, who were hiding out in fear for their lives, found their courage, and out they came into the streets of the city that crucified him, into the courts of the temple that had put him to death, proclaiming that on the third day, in fact, he had risen from the dead. Everybody agrees that the Jews were highly motivated to end Christianity. Good grief, they crucified the Lord. And the Romans too. And that neither were successful. Christianity overran the Roman Empire 
in the space of about 200 years. In the third or fourth century, it became the national religion under Constantine. They wanted to do away with it, but they were not able to do away with it. And the reason that they were not able to do away with it also is very apparent and plain. It is that the tomb was, in fact, empty. Guys, if the tomb was occupied by the body of Jesus, all that the Jews would have had to do, all that the Romans would have had to do to end Christianity in a moment is to say, wait, what? what I'm sorry, what are you claiming? You're, oh, you're saying that he's risen from the dead? Okay, come on, let's go. Come on, I'm going to show you the body. Come on. Go to the tomb, roll away the stone, bring it out. Game over. Pretty much nobody argues with the fact that the tomb was empty. The question is, how did the tomb become empty? That's it. So, did the tomb become empty because Jesus Christ rose from the dead on the morning of the third day as he said that he would, or... Is there some other, frankly, more reasonable explanation? Well, let's consider the other explanations. So the first naturalistic explanation for the empty tomb is that the disciples of Jesus stole the body of Jesus, which is, in fact, the excuse for the empty tomb that the religious leaders of the Jews came up with. They had to deal with the fact that the tomb was empty, and this itself, by the way, is an admission on their part that the tomb was empty. They came up with a reason for the empty tomb, and they said, oh, okay, listen, here's what we do. We, we, we tell everybody that the disciples stole the body of Jesus. So now, was that reasonable? Is it reasonable? All right, here's what we know. We know that the tomb was a tomb that was cut out of solid stone. We know that the doorway to this tomb, as the doorway of pretty much all of these tombs in those days, was about four and a half to five feet high. If you come with us to Israel next year, we will go to a tomb like this. In fact, there are a couple of tombs like this that you'll see. You can kind of squat down and walk through the little door, and you can walk into the antechamber there that they've placed and prepared. So they've dug this out with like a little bench, and you can prepare the body. That's the point of this little chamber. And then you place it into one of these other chambers off to the side, and what they would do is roll the stone in front, they'd let the body decompose for about a year, and after it was down to nothing but the bones, they would come back in, collect up the bones, put it in a little box, and then that's your remains. And they would use these tombs again and again and again and again and again. Wealthy people had family tombs like this. Joseph of Arimathea was one of those guys, and it was a brand new tomb, we read that last week. And so it's a tomb. It's cut out of solid stone. Its doorway is about four and a half to five feet high. And it's guarded, first of all, by an enormous stone that is like a giant stone round disc that was placed into a groove. And you'll see this at the example in Jerusalem that was literally cut into the rock in front of the doorway. And it rolled slightly downhill. There's a little divot right in front of the doorway. And so it would roll into place and kind of stick there And there it was. So some engineering students from Georgia Tech did a study on the size and the type of stone, and they said that the stone would have weighed somewhere between three and 4,000 pounds. Not a little stone, a big stone. So first of all, the body of Jesus was guarded by this massive stone, guarded, well, from his disciples and anyone else who sought to do something with it. 
Secondly, the body of Jesus was guarded by a Roman guard unit, for again, the religious leaders of the Jews knew that Jesus had claimed that he would rise again from the third day, and they did not want to perpetuate that by allowing his body to somehow disappear. And so they went back to Pilate and said, look, you've got a place, and this is the technical language, a custodian unit at the tomb. A custodian was a Roman guard unit of anywhere between four and 16 soldiers, each one of which was trained to protect six square feet of ground. Sixteen of them could protect 36 square yards of ground, and they were supposed to be able to hold that against an invading battalion. The training regimen of the Roman guards and soldiers is contained in a book called The Military Institutes of the Romans. It was used back in the day, in part, to help train our soldiers for warfare in Vietnam. There are 18 things that a Roman soldier would be put to death for located in that book, and one of them is falling asleep on the job. If you fell asleep on the job, here's what you earned. They would burn you alive. That's how you died. You don't have to do a lot of that for people to get the point. You know what I'm saying? And I'll tell you what else. When you're standing guard, you couldn't sit, and you could not lean against anything. These men were not sleeping. Nobody was taking a nap. Everyone was on high alert regarding this Jesus. The whole city had just been turned upside down on account of him, my goodness. They are dotting their I's and crossing their T's in this case. So the body of Jesus is guarded from his disciples by the giant stone and then also by the Roman guard unit. But then in addition to that, they placed a Roman seal there which could only be placed, incidentally, in the presence of that kind of a Roman guard unit and which stood for the full power and authority of Rome. And so here's what that means. It means that if you came along and violated in an unauthorized fashion that seal, the Romans would call out their FBI and CIA, they would fully investigate it, and it was known what the punishment was if they caught you. The punishment was crucifixion upside down. So who wants to sign up for that? All right, lastly... The body of Jesus was guarded from the disciples of Jesus by the cowardice of the disciples of Jesus. These guys ran from the Garden of Gethsemane when they came to arrest Jesus. Peter three times publicly denies Jesus after his arrest. Post-crucifixion, they're not thinking resurrection clearly. Every picture of these guys is of them huddled away in some room behind a locked door. Why? Because they're afraid they might be next. So then if you're going to believe that, um, that the disciples of Jesus stole the body of Jesus, then you have to believe that these cowards took on a Roman guard unit, oh, by the way, they were professional fishermen, and prevailed. Having prevailed, they then broke the seal knowing what that would bring. Having broken the seal, they then rolled away the three to 4,000-pound stone and then took the body of Jesus, which was still dead, disposed of it somewhere, only to then go out into the streets of the city that crucified him, out into the temple courts of the temple that had just crucified him, out into the world beyond, doing what? Preaching a risen Jesus, knowing in advance what it would bring them, which is rejection beatings, persecutions, torture, poverty, and excruciating deaths. Every one of these guys, with the exception of 
possible exception of one, died the most horrific kind of death. So is that reasonable? The second naturalistic explanation for the empty tomb is what's called the swoon theory. Here's the swoon theory. The swoon theory is that Jesus didn't die, he just appeared to die. He passed out, something along those lines. And then after he was placed into the tomb, somehow he revived and then escaped and then found his disciples and then convinced him that he was the risen Lord of glory. And then somehow later after that convinced them that they actually watched him ascend into heaven. That's part of the story that they die for too, incidentally. So, is that reasonable? Well, here's what we know. We know that Jesus was beaten severely and on multiple occasions on His way to the cross. We know that Jesus had parts of His beard plucked out of His face. We know that Jesus had a crown of thorns pressed down upon His head. And if it's the kind of plant that in all likelihood it was, because it's plentiful there in Israel, it were about three-inch spikes. We know that Jesus was scourged, and I've been very tame in my description of that on purpose, because honestly, it's rough. I'm not going to go into all the details of what happened to you as a result of this, but again, as I said last week, they would strip you naked, tie your hands to the top of a pole so as to expose you is the idea, and then with your back to them, these guys would take a whip, which was like a cat of nine tails. It's not one whip, it's many, and within each one of the tails, there are little sharp objects, bones, glass, pieces of metal designed to stick into your body, and these professional torturers would whip you, and it would wrap around you, and then they would yank it back. Many people died during the scourging. Jesus, we know, was so weakened by all of the things that I just described, including the scourging, that he wasn't able to carry the crossbeam of his cross. Simon of Cyrene, as we saw a few weeks ago, had to carry it for him. And then when they got to the place of the execution, the crucifixion, they drove seven-inch spikes through his wrists and through his feet. And for six hours, he pushed and pulled against those spikes, gasping for breath and dying from asphyxiation. We know that. We know that at least the four professional executioners who had, by law, to sign his death warrant must have signed his death warrant, and so apparently they thought he was dead, in fact, so dead that one of the soldiers, just to confirm, came in with a spear, stabbed him up under the ribs, the idea is up into the heart. See, they would do a couple of different things. If they wanted to speed your death along, which is what they did with the other two thieves, they would break your legs. Why? So you couldn't push off your legs and get a breath of air, and then you would quickly die of asphyxiation in that position of hanging from your wrists. But if they thought you were already dead, which is clearly what they thought of Jesus, you know, just to be sure, they'd take a spear and stab you up into your heart. That ought to do it. We know as well that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus came to claim the body of Jesus, and then they prepared it after the fashion of burial in his day. So what is that? Well, they, would t- they took his dead body off the cross. They carried it in all likelihood to the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. They went into the antechamber in all likelihood, and that's where they prepared it. And they would wash the naked body of the Lord first with water from head to toe. Having done that, they would lay out a long, wide piece of linen, longer, more than twice as long as his body. They would lay his body upon it. They would fold it over the top of his head and tuck it up under his feet. And then, in the case of Jesus, Nicodemus cashed in most of his assets, apparently, and purchased a huge 75 pounds of burial spices. 
It's extravagant. It's like a king, really. And they would mix it with some kind of a liquid, you know, I don't know, water or whatever, but they would mix it into this really thick paste. And then they took long strips of linen, and they would generously coat them in this paste, and then they mummified him, beginning with his toes. They wrapped his feet, they wrapped his ankles all the way up his legs, all the way up underneath his arms. Then they pinned his arms down along his side, and starting beneath his fingertips, wrapped him again with these linen strips in this thick paste all the way up to his neck, and then they took a separate one, generously applied the thick paste, and tightly wrapped his head and face. And here's what they didn't do. They didn't cut an air hole. They didn't insert a snorkel. They didn't do this for anyone that that they weren't absolutely sure was dead. Then they took his body and they put it in the tomb and they rolled the 3,000-pound stone or 4,000, depending on what it was, in front of the tomb. And then, of course, the Roman seal and then the Roman guard. And so then if you're going to believe in the swoon theory, then you have to believe that somehow Jesus survived the beatings and the beard plucking and the crown of thorns and the scourging and the six hours on the cross and the stab up into the heart. Somehow he fooled four professional executioners into signing his death warrant by law. Somehow Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus also were fooled, and apparently the women too, because the story indicates that they were there for all of this. And then, as they embalmed him, I guess he held his breath from, after the, from the time that they wrapped his head until sometime after they put him in the tomb and rolled the stone in front of the doorway. By the way, the encasement would have weighed somewhere between 90 and 120 pounds, just the encasement on him. And then he woke up and somehow got out of this 120-pound encasement or however much it was. And in that condition... Rolled away the three to 4,000 pound tomb, beat up the Roman guard, broke the seal, walked several miles, found his disciples, and in that condition convinced them that, in fact, he was the risen Lord of glory. And then, of course, you know, six weeks or so later, he convinced them that somehow that they actually saw him ascend into heaven. They die for that part of the story, too. So is that reasonable? All right, there is one last theory. Um... And it's, in my opinion, I'm trying to be kind, so silly, it's almost not worth mentioning, but in the spirit of thoroughness, the last theory is that the women on the morning of the resurrection went to the wrong tomb. That's it. That's the whole theory right there. So even though Matthew, Mark, and Luke record that they had been with Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus when the body was prepared and placed in the tomb on the previous Friday afternoon... On Sunday morning, when they returned with more burial spices, expecting to find him dead, they went to the wrong place. And then, I guess, I mean, if you assume that that's right, did Peter and John go to the wrong tomb too? Wait a minute, what about the Romans? Did they go to the wrong tomb? Because they had a guard unit there. How about the Jews who came to them and said, hey, you need to put us to a guard unit there? What about Joseph of Arimathea? He owned the tomb. It was his family tomb. Did he lose track of his own tomb? Did the angels, did they get confused? I mean, how did this work? Does it make sense? Simon Greenleaf, who is one of the brightest American legal minds ever, was a professor of law at Harvard University. 
And he was an expert on evidence. He wrote a book called The Treatise on Evidence. It's kind of like a huge work in that field. And famous, famous guy. And evidence deals with what is admissible and inadmissible in a court of law here in our American jurisprudence system. He was openly mocking of Christianity until some of his students came to him and said, you know, why don't you take your laws of evidence, you're the like foremost expert in the country on this, and apply them to the known facts of the resurrection of Jesus. And he said, you know what, I'll do that. And then he became a believer in the process. And he says this, he says, all that Christianity asks of men is that they would be consistent with themselves, that they would treat its evidences as they treat the evidence of other things, and that they would try and judge its actors and its witnesses as they deal with their fellow men when testifying to human affairs and actions in human tribunals. The result, he says, it is confidently believed will be an undoubting conviction of their integrity, ability, and truth. Dr. Frank Morrison, another lawyer, studied the life of Jesus and said, you know what, this is the most beautiful life ever lived in my opinion, he said, except when you get to the resurrection. That's a myth. And so he set out to write a book refuting the myth of the resurrection of Jesus. And he also became a Christian. And he ended up writing a book called Who Moved the Stone? And the first chapter of the book is entitled The Book That Refused to Be Written. Lord Littleton and Dr. Benjamin West, two professors of yesteryear at Oxford University, got together and said, you know, we want to write a book refuting the myth of Christianity. And so one of them took the myth, we'll put that in quotes, of the resurrection, and the other one took the myth, we'll put that in quotes, of the Apostle Paul and of his conversion. And they, by agreement, went off separately to study the issues, to write about the issues, and then at a set time, they came back together again, both believers in Christ at that point. And Dr. West said, reject not until you have examined the evidence. And then, of course, there's my namesake, Thomas. Mr. I, uh, Mr. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. That guy. Well, in the very next verse, Luke says that eight days later, Jesus disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them this time. No, no lunch duties. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord, and my God. And do you know what happened to Thomas? Just like all these other guys, he went from being a guy who is huddled in fear for his life to being a guy who no longer feared death at all, for he had seen it defeated. Thomas took the gospel all the way to India, where he then attested to the truth of a risen Savior with his blood because he was run through with spears and thrown into a furnace, you know, for the fairy tale that he and all of these other guys who died similar kinds of deaths concocted and stuck with. My Lord and my God, he says. And I love Jesus' response. John says to him, or Jesus said to him, Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? And then maybe speaking of you, he says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. 
So did Jesus Christ really rise from the dead? Because it is mystifying. I mean, I think we have to agree that, look, 100 times out of 100, 1,000 times out of 1,000, a billion times out of a I mean, however many numbers you want to throw at it, when people die and we bury them, that's it, guys. We don't, they don't come back to us at that point. But what if Jesus is God? What if that? What if he is himself the author of life? For if he is God, you would expect a miraculous life and you get that. If he is God and he said, hey, listen, I'm, this is what I'm doing. I'm like all in on this. I'm going to suffer and die on the cross for your sin. And then I'm going to rise again from the dead to offer you forgiveness and eternal life. Oh, and I'm going to do it on the morning of the third day. I'm sorry, but if he's God, is that mystifying? You shocked by that? Or are you going, no, nah, I mean, these people should have just been hanging out at the grave going, I think the sun's coming up here in a second. Should be coming forth any minute. Really? Guys, if Jesus is God, then it makes perfect sense. And then also blessed are those who have not seen and yet who have believed. What difference does this make? Well, if he's risen, changes everything for everyone. And if he's risen, is he not God? And does he not bring you everything he claims? Forgiveness complete, past, present, and future, eternal life for forever, meaning, purpose, and so much more. If Jesus is risen, then nothing's the same. And that's a wonderful thing. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you, um, God, for your word. Um, we thank you for the way that you have preserved faithfully these stories, that they might enliven our faith. God, we thank you for all that you've preserved as well throughout history, things that we know about the Romans and burial processes and all kinds of other stuff that help us to go further into the story to understand it even better. Lord, for all of these things, we thank you, but more than anything, we thank you for the one who entered into this world to live the perfect life that we have not and to take upon himself our sin as he said that he would, to suffer and die infinitely in our place, to be buried on the third day, and faithfully as he claimed to come forth. Lord, we are not crazy, for he is God. I pray that you would give us faith in that Jesus if we do not have it. We would come forth and Give to Him our sin and our lives. And Lord, even for those of us who do have it, but who are beaten down by a world that, frankly, thinks we're crazy, but hasn't even studied any of this. Lord, remind us that we're not crazy and embolden us to live for Jesus and to tell everyone we can about Him. Do these things, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.